Good morning. This is Pastor Mike Letterman. Welcome to our lesson this morning, sponsored through ChristLives.org. Visit us on the web at http colon forward slash forward slash www.christ-lives.org. Our lesson this morning is the third and final lesson in our three-part series on the book of James. This book is one of the epistles found in the New Testament. Let me give you a brief refresher from the last two weeks. <clears throat> this letter was written by James, the brother of Jesus, so he knew Jesus very well. It was probably written around A.D. 40 to 45 to Jewish Christians living outside Palestine. Part of the thread that runs through James is the underlying fact that Christians must live by faith. They should be doers, not just hearers of God's word. I think we drove that home last week as well. James' readers at this time were suffering from terrible persecution and they were living in a lot of poverty. They were in social and spiritual conflict. Many of these believers were living in a worldly fashion. In the epistle of James, he corrects them and challenges them to seek God's wisdom to work out these problems. In this same fashion, many of these Christians that claim faith do not demonstrate it to each other or to a lost and dying world. It's just like today. James challenges these followers to guard their tongue and use wisdom in everything they do. He also reminds them that faith without works is dead. I'm going to repeat that again. Faith without works is dead. I like to use today's lesson to summarize what we've learned in the preceding lessons. I also want to spend part of our time together studying the circle of faith, love, and works. Let's pick up where we left off in James chapter 3. Today we will begin with verse 13. Two kinds of wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Let's break these down. Human wisdom is proud and jealous. It's the cause of disagreement and certainly not a peace. With, where there is this wisdom, there will always be confusion. The ambition of man tends to destroy life with God. The works of this kind of wisdom are bad, and they're really of no worth. There's no real benefit for the church here that the church can come from. They do nothing to help Christians or build the church. These works just destroy the unity that ought to be there. In verse 17, there's true wisdom that comes from above. This wisdom is what comes from God that is so different. It's a gift from God. It's not what a person can achieve. It's not of this world. 
James has described what this wisdom is not. Now he shows it what shows what it is. He uses seven words in the Greek language to show what it's like. I'm going to do my best. The first one is katharos, which means pure. It's clean and has no selfish ambition. It's holy as God himself is holy. Then there's demaging, or nice, which means peacemaking. It brings people closer together and nearer to God. It does not fight, but it brings peace. The next one is evagenis, which means gentle. It's fair and kind. It knows the weakness of human beings and helps them. It does not insist on its own rights. It's always ready to help and not to blame. The next one is Amadoshi Lakin, which means open to reason. It is easy to approach it. It will listen to what other people say. Oh, the next one, Elosi. Mercy. Full of mercy and good fruits. It helps those who suffer, and it has sympathy for all those who are sad. It has the pity and the love to do good for them and all people. Elthesi, which means fair, fair to all. It shows respect for all people. It doesn't make any distinctions whether you're rich or poor, what color you are, what you drive. It doesn't care. It does not do anything from prejudice. It's sure about what is true. It has standards that do not change. The next one is elecrinis, which means sincere. It's honest. It doesn't pretend or act apart. It's sincere in all that it does and with all people. It does not work for its own benefit. You know, this verse could be a well-known saying that James used. He's teaching here that true wisdom is the wisdom of peace. Those who have this wisdom do good works. Those good works result in blessing and peace. They're like seeds that grow into a plant. The fruit of that plant is righteousness, and the soil in which that plant plant grows is peace. It's those who make peace that sow and look after the plant of righteousness. They do not only love peace and live in peace, but they also try to create peace. Peace cannot grow where people are jealous and work only for their own good. Nothing good can grow where people fight one another. There has to be unity, and they have to work together for the same things. Peace means a right relationship with other people and with God. If this does not exist, there can be no true righteousness. So since faith without works is dead, I'm sure that you'll remember the parable of the Good Samaritan from, from Luke chapter 10. Let's discuss it again. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Now I use the New Inter International Version. Your version should read similar, but may not read exact, but it'll be close. The parable of the Good Samaritan starting with 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. That was his first mistake. Teacher, he asked, what must I do 
to inherit eternal life. But Jesus replied back to him, What is written in the law? He replied, How do you read it? So the man kind of puffed up and he answers, He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But the man wanted to justify himself, so he kept going. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now this is very special. I'm going to explain the relationship between the Samaritan and the Jews in just a moment. But this is a big deal. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, both of which are expensive, oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. So, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. It pays not to test Jesus. So, why was it odd for the Samaritan to take pity on an injured Jew? Well, to, to get to the root of that, we need to go back to around 721 B.C., you see, the Samaritans were a group of people who lived in Samaria, which was an area north of Jerusalem. They were half Jews and half Gentiles. When Assyria captured the northern kingdom of Israel in 721 BC, some were taken in captivity while others were left behind. The ones left behind intermarried with the Assyrians. Thus, these people were neither fully Hebrew nor fully Gentile. The Samaritans had their own unique copy of the first five books of Scripture as well as their own unique system of worship. At the time of Jesus, the Jews and Samaritans did not deal with one another. Jesus, however, ministered to the people of Samaria, preaching the good news to them. Now, if Samaritans had no dealings with the Jews, and Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. It's important to note a conversation that Jesus had with a, with a Samaritan woman. We're told she said the following. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. That's from John chapter 4 verse 9. So here was a Samaritan man, in this case, that was detested by the Jews because they had intermingled the bloodline of the Jew with the Gentiles. 
The Samaritans were not fond of Jews either. Remember when Jesus first passed through Samaria, the Samaritans refused to receive him. I want to ask you a question. How many times do we pass on by? How many times do we see someone in need and walk past them? Now, I'm not talking about situation where we have someone that takes advantage of us to the point where by continuing to, to keep them up or do things for them, we enable them to continue down the path that they're on toward addiction or something like that. Giving them money in that circumstance does them harm, and more harm than good. Helping them seek true medical assistance to alleviate themselves of the addiction would be a help. Giving them $20 is not. So how many times do we pass on by? I want to answer this with a lesson from my own life. About three years ago, I was doing some security work at a, I'll just call it a place, in downtown Nashville. You see, I've always enjoyed and volunteered for this kind of work because it puts me next to people. I have many other jobs I've done. I've owned companies, worked in healthcare, and done a lot of different things. But I, I like working with people. I like being able to help people. I mean, and after all, I have to say, Uncle Sam made a young, much younger me very good at what I did, sometimes too good. You know, this was one of Nashville's ugly parts of town in the evening. It attracted many people. People were mugged. They were robbed. Prostitution was a problem. Drugs were a problem. Firearms on the premises were a problem. It was a tough business. I had a pistol shoved in my face more than once. Part of my job was to keep the peace. Because the facility was so crowded, sometimes it was hard to tell who was a person from the street and who wasn't. It was also in December at this particular time, and it was bitter cold. Now, I carried the tools I needed to protect myself and those inside the facility. I had my pepper spray, collapsible baton, my handcuffs, and if it came down to it, a 40 caliber Smith & Wesson pistol. I can't tell you how many times I have had a pistol shoved in my face or how many times I have sprayed someone in the eyes only to have them wipe it away, laugh, and keep on trying to physically engage. I did have three very positive experiences in this particular circumstance. One night, God used me to keep a little Amish girl from being kidnapped. A little girl perhaps maybe three, God took her hand and walked her toward the front door. Now, I had, I had talked to her father not more than 30 minutes prior, and I was getting to the point where I was, I'll call him Jay, uh, getting to the point where I knew Jay a little bit, and he would talk to me. At this particular time, I was able to, to cry out his name, even though I couldn't get to him. And the guy let go of the little girl's hand and went on out the door. Never saw him again, couldn't get him on camera. Another night, he used me to keep a young woman who was dying from a drug overdose alive until help could arrive. A bad situation. She barely made it. I kept her talking, asking her what her name was, dealing using every trick I could to try to keep her awake until that ambulance got there because I knew 
If she ever went to sleep, she would not wake back up again. It took two full doses of Narcan to counteract the fentanyl and the crystal meth she had in her system. Two full doses of Narcan. This lady was on the gates of heaven's door. As I understand it, she had a good outcome. Her parents came from Kentucky to pick her up, and she went home, and she recovered. One night, I met a homeless man by the name of Michael. He was half-sitting, half-lying on the sidewalk in front of the building. We had a lot of homeless people come through there. One of the building managers said to me angrily, Get that trash off my sidewalk. I disregarded the outburst and asked the man if he was okay. He whispered, please call me an ambulance. I can't breathe. So I did. Two days later, he showed up again. His face was gray. And I called him an ambulance again. Now this happened several times. Each time, the building manager became more and more angry. One day, she went out front herself and cursed the man until he slunk off. At a meeting of passerby, they called him an ambulance. I didn't see him for a couple of days, and I found him one evening around the corner of the building, away from the cameras with a friend. I struck up a conversation. By now, I knew him pretty well. It turned out the reason Michael needed the ambulance was that he was truly so sick, he couldn't breathe. You see, Michael had pneumonia in both lungs. Without the hospital book visits, he would have died. But yet, people judged him because of how he looked and smelled. You see, he was a member of the street. You might think, well, Michael needs to get off and take a bath and go get him a job. We talked about that. He came to Nashville looking for work and got it. And after he was here for a couple weeks, the plant laid off a bunch of people. And so... He was in a, a small one-room one, one room hotel room, and um, when the money ran out, they kicked him out. He tried selling newspapers for a while and was able to move back into his room until they cut out the homeless newspapers. Then the only thing left for him was the street. Now, Michael would work. You say, well, where's he going to work? He's working downtown. When the trucks would come in and need to be unloaded, he and a couple of the other homeless people would help unload the trucks for the cash that the driver would give them. Michael also had a friend. His friend was a Vietnam veteran. He was in a wheelchair, and his legs were missing all the way up to his torso. He was tied into the chair. You see, Michael had problems which he freely admitted to me, and I will not discuss them here. He knew he wasn't perfect, especially in the eyes of the world, but he couldn't turn his back on his friend. You see, this man was his friend, a true friend. Michael pushed him to the mission at night and back to the street again the next day. When they couldn't get into the mission because it was already full, he covered him with his own coat and watched him while he slept. When Michael got food, he split it with his friend. I took a special interest in Michael. We became friends. I asked him what I could get him to make his life easier. He said, 
I really want a Bible. I had one, but it was stolen. I hope they read it. I read it from cover to cover many times. You know, that broke my heart. How many times do we take having a Bible for granted? How many do you have in your home? I'm guessing right now I probably have at least 12 to 15. From my great-great-great-grandmother, my great-grandmother, my grandparents, my first Bible, my son's Bibles from Bible school, and many more. That night I talked to my wife about Michael. Hey, Jan has a heart of gold. She's a, she was a social worker for many years. She and our youngest son put together a care kit for Michael. They took one of Brett's old backpacks from school and they filled it full of pre-cooked foods, canned ham, banana sausages, crackers. They put a flashlight in there, some matches, a small can of Sterno, some reusable eating utensils, and a large print Bible. I put in one of the books that I had written in there for him too, as he'd expressed an interest. The bag was heavy, but because of all the food in it, and the Bible, and the book, it was heavy. I found Michael with his friend around the corner of the building and presented him with his bag. That was December the 18th of 2019. As he gently opened the bag, he removed his precious Bible, and he held it... <clears throat> he held it to his chest as he quickly looked through the rest of the bag. How often do we take our Bible for granted? Other people began to watch him with interest. He closed the bag and quickly zipped it. He said, people like to steal. I'll look at this more when we're alone. Then he turned to me and a long tear slid down the side of his face from his right eye. He said, tell your wife and son, thank you so much. This is the first Christmas present I have had in over 10 years. Wow. Before you judge someone standing at the side of the road, think that perhaps you, like most Americans, are only about three months away from being homeless yourself. If you lose your job and you still have a car payment and a house payment, what are you going to let go first? Probably the, the car payment eventually. And after about three payments, they'll come get your car. Then you have no way to work. Then you have the house. And after a few payments missing that house, they're going to come get it. And where does that put you? Same place that Michael was. Most Americans are two to three paychecks away from being on the street and being just like my friend Michael. If we talk about faith and deeds, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? What is what good is what you said? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by some action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I can do. 
You believe there's only one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Think about this. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Believe what God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith who has no deeds? Can such faith save him? If he doesn't have deeds, he didn't have faith. So dead faith doesn't work. It doesn't work in doing godly deeds. It doesn't work in bringing salvation. It doesn't work when you do it to show your brethren what a noble and righteous person you are. So God's love in action in 1 John chapter 3 verses 17 through 18, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him. How can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Matthew chapter 25, verses 20, 42 through 43. I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. So it's like the parable that Jesus told about the sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed for my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I 
tell you. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you are cursed, and into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick in prison not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not do for me. Then go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts and press them on your children. So to summarize, dead faith doesn't work. It's nice talk, warm words, they don't help. Hungry people can't eat speech. Correct belief, accurate, doc, accurate doctrines, no love, no loyalty, no obedience. Demons know many truths. But living faith works. Being right with God through active faith. Trusting God, obey, love, sacrifice. Be like Abraham. Entrust yourself, commit, risk, join. So, contradiction, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. A person is justified by faith apart from the work, apart from the works of the law. You see the contradiction in those? I hope you do. Today, as I summar, summarize the, the, um, the, the epistle of James, I want you to think about the things that we've talked about. We've talked about giving to other people. We're talking about accepting others and giving of yourself, your time, your money. See, God has no need for your money. He doesn't, he doesn't care anything about your money. What he wants is your heart and your obedience. God doesn't need money. The church needs money. You think that that coffee that you drink and the, and the child care that you get on Sunday morning, you think that that's free? No, it costs somebody something. And that electricity that runs in that church that keeps you warm in the wintertime, it costs something. A dollar or two dollars doesn't get it. We'll talk about giving in another lesson. We talked about the, the mouth, how we hurt other people with the things that we say. We talked about wisdom and knowing what the right thing is to do and doing it. So, today, if you look back on your life and you think about the things that you've done or not done, or perhaps the things that you should have done, you think about somebody that needed your help, 
maybe somebody that needs your help right now, go to them and make it right. If you haven't lived your Christian life the way that you should, you know, God's always there. And the Son of Man sits at the right hand of God and He intercedes for us daily. None of us are perfect. You know, I'm no different than anyone else out there. I'm just saved by the grace of God and through the atonement of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just ask that you do the same. Today, if you're not a Christian, I ask that you bow me and say this prayer. And if you do make a decision today, please send an email to ministry at christ-lives.org. I'd be glad to minister to you. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to know your thoughts. Bow with me, please, if you can. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, dear Lord. We thank you for all the many people that are within the sound of my voice, the sound of your voice, God. I must decrease so you can increase, Heavenly Father. Father, I ask you into the hearts of all those that can hear me that you will minister to them whatever the need is in their life, if it's physical, emotional, mental. Father, so many people hurt, and only you can eliminate that hurt. Father, I ask you to listen to each prayer out there and answer each one as only you know how. Accept those that are accepting you, Lord, and minister to those that have returned to you. For this prayer, I ask in the holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the, 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 this three series on the book of James. I have another group of lessons starting for next weekend. I hope that you'll find them equally enjoyable. I'm looking forward to hearing from any of you. Ministry at Christ-Lives.org. Don't hesitate to send me an email, or if you just want a prayer, I'll add you to my prayer book, which is growing every single day, and I consider it an absolute blessing to be able to pray for you. May God bless you and keep you. Amen.